What are the top five questions on Google that are asked about bridging finance? This is the discussion point for today. Myself and my fantastic broker over at Grand Union Finance. We sat down and we answered these five questions for you in this little Game of Loans podcast episode. So I really hope you enjoy this. Um, Hopefully these are the kind of questions that you would want answered. Um, And if you do have any follow-up questions, you can always get in touch with me on Instagram. Just find me at the Sam Norris or click the link in the show notes below. Don't forget this podcast is sponsored by Grand Union Finance, my company, um, who are the genuine alternative to the standard mortgage broker for property investors. We specialise in working with property investors. We help you with your buy-to-let mortgages, your HMO mortgages, your service accommodation mortgages, your social housing mortgages, your commercial mortgages, your bridging finance, your development finance. We do everything. So if you do have a query or an inquiry or you need help, then do get in touch. Just email us, info at grandunionfinanceltd.co.uk. And again, you'll find that email in the show notes. Let's get on with the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode where we answer the top five questions about bridging finance on Google. Hello, everybody. I'm Sam. This is Chanel. And today what we're going to do is discuss the top five questions on Google about bridging finance. So should we just get straight into it? Let's get straight into it. Right, question number one on Google regarding bridging finance is, is a bridging loan cheaper than a mortgage? Wow. This is, I mean, I was quite, I was quite amazed that this was the, this was gonna be the number one question. Number one, yeah, because everyone wants everything cheap. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I think, a lot of the, the perception a lot of the time is that it is more expensive. Yeah. If we're looking at like taking it over a 12 month period. Yeah. It is, I think. When you just compare like apples and apples. Yeah. But. Numbers, yeah. The numbers just, well, the way they stack, yeah. Exactly. But with um, a lot of our clients, they refinance before a 12 month period. Literally, yeah. So how, what sort of time frame do you think on average your clients, if it, so say we're doing either a BRR or like an HMO conversion, you're using yeah. a bridge to purchase, how long, how long on average do you reckon your, your clients are taking it and we're refinancing them out, how many months? It's difficult, isn't it? Because when you look at, well, well, when you have a conversation with a client and you discuss what their aims and objectives are for the next you know, five years, are they trying to get in and out of deals quickly? Um, are they buying properties that don't need a significant amount of work doing to them, which means that they are going to be in and out within six months. But then when you compare some of the other clients who are doing HMO conversions where they're doing the full whack and they're spending 150k, are they going to get in and out within six months? Probably not. So uh, an example of you know comparing the, the cost of what it is at the moment, I, I did this exact uh, this exact thing with a client last month or the month before. Yeah, I don't know you're telling me about this. Yeah. yeah, and if you're looking at how much product fees are at the moment with mortgages, if you compare that and you put put the exact figures on a six month process, because that's what the client was looking to do, was to get in and get out within six months. I was going, okay, so what is the product fee that you're gonna have to, to pay? Um, and compare that to how it looked like with a bridging, it did actually work out cheaper as a bridge. It is. This so is, this is yeah. it. And if you, so, if we're what we're to explain, I guess, to those that maybe don't know, aren't following exactly what we're talking about, mm-hmm. is the interest rate that you're paying for a mortgage is annual. Yeah. So to work out like the APR to make a comparison, we take that interest rate that we're paying annually, which at the moment I think the average, even if we take into account residential rates, which are obviously lower than buy to let, etc. I think the average right now is like 5.39, yeah. something along those yeah, like, kind of lines. Yeah. 
some lenders are charging like two, three, four, five percent as fees. Yeah. Chuck that on top. That's your annual cost, basically. Yeah. Then we compare that to a bridge. Now you might pay one percent a month on a bridge, twelve percent. That's obviously higher than five point three nine. Yeah. You're paying two percent fee on average. So you know that's fourteen percent mm. straight away. You're going well. Hang on a second. Yeah. But if to, you you're going to have to keep that money on that mortgage regardless. Mm. But if we actually pay in six months, you're still paying it that two percent fee. But and this is you know this is one percent per month um, uh, bridge. Rate, bridge by the way. Yeah. This might be cheaper. So suddenly it goes from fourteen percent to actually to eight percent. Mm. Now if you're paying five point three nine and you're paying a three percent fee. That's 8.39. Plus the early repayment charge. Plus yeah. the early repayment charge. Yeah. So is the answer to this question, yeah. is a bridging loan cheaper than a mortgage? Actually, yes. Yeah, at the moment. At the I moment. I would say, yeah. If you want to get, if you, yeah. For clients who want to get in and out of the, obviously it's deal dependent, but if you want to get in and out of a deal within six months, you're considering, you're going to need to put it on a mortgage that's going to have early repayment charges. If you don't want early repayment charges, then the interest rate goes up because yeah. the flexibility, um, they want to they want to charge you a little bit more for that. Um, but yeah, at the moment, that's what I'm seeing on gen uh, as a generalisation. I bet you weren't expecting that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember us having that conversation as well and mm -hmm. you going through it with me and I was like, yeah. And mm -hmm. I knew there was a reason I broke it. <laughs> so there That's we go. It. Is a bridging loan cheaper than a bridge? Sorry, is a bridging loan cheaper than a mortgage? Yes, in certain instances it is. Um, yeah. But you have to actually figure out the figures, time frames, term length, early repayment charges, all these things taken into account. Potentially, mm -hmm. a bridging loan might be cheaper. So. But this is why you work with a broker, isn't it? Because you 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 go into a broker with your aims and objectives, and our job is to work out okay, where where are you right now, and where do you want to get to? in five years time and if that means you're doing quick flips that you're doing in every six months then yeah that's how we would advise you so yeah it's key there to have a chat with a mortgage broker to get to understand your circumstances as well because that yeah, obviously sure. affects the rates yeah. what, how much you're paying and all those different pieces of exactly and links to organized calls with both myself and chanel will be in the description for this video or if you're listening in on the podcast it'll be in the show notes cool so, question number two, are you ready, Chanel? Yep. Do I need a deposit for a bridge? Now, I don't know about you, but I reckon this is the number one question <laughs> that I get asked. Well, it was only recently, we were on a call with a client, they said, oh, I wanna buy this house at auction. Cool, how much cash have you got available? Oh, I haven't got any cash. <laughs> I saw online you can get a 100% bridge. Yeah, that might be true. But again, so circumstances. Talk, talk us through them. So, getting a 100% bridge is, this is the terminology that is used, but it's misleading, isn't it? How, yeah. is, how can, what, what does 100% bridge mean? Well, getting 100% borrowing on a property will completely depend on how you're acquiring the property, essentially. Are you buying it below market value? Because then we can utilize open market value lenders that will actually lend to you based on what the property is worth and not what you're buying it for. So if you're getting a significant discount on the property, and you're buying it at X amount, then yeah, you can borrow 75% of what it's worth, which sometimes means that you're not putting a deposit down. But then you've also got to consider that you've got to get into the deal. So soft costs, such as solicitor fees, valuations, our fees, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, everything, it, yeah, it all adds up. And so you do have to have some money in your back pocket, even if you are getting 100% borrowing, so. Exactly. That's... And 
in addition to that, a lot of the time when people are, when lenders are talking about 100% uh, bridging, what they're actually saying is 100% of the value of the property you're purchasing. Mm. So what we're talking about there is actually available equity. We're not getting 100% yeah. of the available equity. So what that will mean is either A, exactly what you just said, looking at open market value, is the, is the discount you're getting significantly, significant enough for you to actually borrow 100% of the purchase price? Yeah. Or sometimes it's using equity in another property. Mm. So a lot of the time you read the small print on those yeah. things and it says, um, you you know, subject to needing other property. That's it. Yeah, it even happened on a mortgage. Uh, back in the day, Barclays used to do their 100% guarantor-based yeah. first-time buyer mortgage thing. And in the small print, it was like, and we will be taking a second charge over your, over your family's home. Yeah. So you're still not getting 100%. Yeah, that's um, it. So, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's differentiating between 100% of the purchase price versus 100% of the equity. And I think a lot of people get that confused. They think, yeah. I'm going to buy that property for 500 grand mm. and I'm going to get 500 grand and the only charge will be on that property. Yeah. Now, unless you're buying that property probably for about 700 grand, mm. the chance of you covering it is absolutely pretty much zero. Yeah. And exactly what you've said as well, there are other soft costs that are involved in that. And let's not be, that's a, a sort of a follow on from this is actually the deal itself and getting out of the deal, like you, you, sort, of, you sort of half mentioned, which is, yeah, if you're not putting any skin in the game, can you actually create enough equity that when you refinance, yeah. you can actually pay back the bridge? Um, yeah. I say this all the time to clients, they're like, oh, you know, I'm gonna buy this property, 500 grand, um, I am going to, you know, I'm going to get a bridge to purchase it and then I'm going to get an investor to cover the cost of the deposit. Yeah. Um, uh, they're going to cover the cost of the fees, the, the you know, the, the legals, your fee, yeah. um, the planning consultant, whatever, the cost to do the work. Mm. And then you're like, okay, cool. So you're borrowing 100% of absolutely everything. And don't forget, you don't just have to pay that back. You've got to pay that back plus interest. <laughs> yeah. So you're paying back the bridge plus interest and you also got to pay the investor interest as well. Yeah. Now, if the investor, and this is one of the issues that we have quite a lot, but if the investor is then going to take a charge over the property as well, yeah. when we refinance, we have to pay back everyone. Yeah. So if a bridging lender cannot see that that is viable, they won't even then do the bridge in the first place. That's it, yeah. And we wouldn't even dream of approaching bridging lenders without considering what the exit will be. Exactly. You've got two options. You're either going to sell the property or you're refinancing it, pretty much. That's really That's 98% of the time. That's, yeah, that's, what it's that's the be. two main options that you've got. Um, and if we can't, and we're brokers, I mean, we calculate what is this going to look like in 12 months' time when you want to pay it back. Um, is it feasible? I mean, realistically, if you're going to be a property investor and you're leveraging 100% of a deal, um, you, it's, it's risky business. It is, it is risky. And I think back in the day, um, and, and I, I always said, I've got no real issue. I mean, I did my first ever flip that I did. I did not put any, I didn't put one penny of my own money into it. Yeah. And we made a profit. And in fairness, it was in a crap market. It was right. in 2010, okay. 11. Yeah. So wasn't the best of markets either. Um, and it worked, but I think, I wouldn't say we were lucky, I just think it, it all worked out quite well, we bought really well, etc. but mm. the reality of it is, is we were in and out in about nine months, but what would have happened if we just couldn't find a buyer? Yeah. And at the moment, one of the issues is, is yeah, on a flip, if you're borrowing absolutely everything, mm. flips are profit-making um, strategies. Yeah. BRR, 
is is a it is a profit making strategy, but it's actually a portfolio building strategy. So they are very very different. Mm. So you are leaving money in a deal for BRR. You're taking money out of the deal with flips. Yeah. But a flip is only going to work if the sales market is strong enough for you to be able to sell the property. Otherwise, you need a plan B, which is obviously going to be refinance. Yeah. So this is what we obviously do is we'll look at what the plan A is if it's to flip, if it's to sell the property, whatever that might be. Mm. But but even lenders sometimes um, will say to us, you know. Can you just check to see if there's a there's a there's a, a standard you know option for, for a plan B yeah. on refinance? And then we have to look at right what's going to be valued at. Take a bit of a haircut because we know what value valuers are like at the moment. Mm. What's seventy five percent of that going to be? What's the rental income likely to be? Is it possible on a standard rental income to get seventy five percent? We've got to take all these things into account. Yeah. Um, and the reality is, if you're borrowing every single penny. Mm. The chances you've, of you in this market being able to do that is, yeah. is zero. You know, yeah. go, go back pre-credit crunch. Um, to be yeah. honest, go back pre-sort of Brexit times where we had that nice little bit between credit crunch ending and Brexit sort of beginning and, and, yeah. and the market becoming a bit turbulent again. We had a really nice property market where you could do money in, money out deals. And this is what all mm-hmm. the gurus now sort of preach about because that's where they all, they all made their money. Yeah, exactly. But they're talking about that market, not this market. Yeah. It's tough, and I think it's about mitigating your own risk as an investor, um, and they that's going to differentiate you between uh, an investor that's going to do well and go the long the long run than um, you know this is going to be your first and only deal <laughs> because that's the thing when you're approaching bridging lenders you've got to you've got to make the deal make sense to them, and if it doesn't make sense to them then. It's not worth doing, in my opinion. Like bridging lenders, they they know what they're talking about. They're able to understand the risk associated to getting in and out of deals. And if if they don't see what it's viable, then yeah, it's it's good to take their advice on. But also, the um, what lenders and, and I've for, for the greatest number of years I've been doing this, lenders actually say to me as well, we want to see that clients have a, have some skin in the game. Yeah, because it actually spreads the risk. Because otherwise, I mean, look, with personal guarantees and all this kind of stuff nowadays, the um, you know the client is taking a risk. But if actually they don't have any assets in the background, their personal guarantee is pretty much worth nothing. nothing. And therefore, the lender's actually taking all the risk. Yeah. So lenders just want to see. It's not because they can't necessarily do the deal sometimes, but it's mm. because they just want to see that the lend- that the client is you know is is doing the same and, and putting yeah exactly. put, you know, putting putting their head on the chopping block a little bit as well. That's so it. Yeah. It's, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Thing. I agree. Yeah. One thing on that, just talking about putting money in and, and, and all that kind of stuff, one of the big differentiators that I find between really good investors and the ones that I think will, will struggle a little bit is a lot of my clients have cash flow. They've got something yeah. that can generate funds for them. And I always talk about this with my clients is if you can be in a position where you've got something that cash flows, mm-hmm. whether it be a really good job, a good business, yeah. or a or a portfolio, yeah. having the ability to put money, have take lumps of money and put them into your flip business or your yeah. portfolio building business, mm. which I, I tend to see those as, some people will have to keep them separate, but sometimes I see it almost as a bit linear. Yeah. Like I see some of my best clients, I talk about this like three pillar strategy all the time, cash flow at the beginning, mm. generate the money, use that to develop slash flip, yeah. grow the money, use the profits to build the portfolio. Yeah, keep the assets, yeah. yeah. And it's um, having that behind you, will will give you that safety net. I mean, I've seen developers before where they've said, 
you know, if we didn't have that cash flowing portfolio behind us to when we did this this development, we'd be bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And so that's it's a frightening thing to hear, isn't it? And when you do get into the bigger bigger deals and doing the bigger projects, you have got to have that behind you because it one thing going wrong can can ruin the, the next 10, 15 years of your life. You know, Mass so. massively. And yeah. you don't just go back to square one. You go. Beyond, beyond square one. Yeah. you know, you're at minus seven, <laughs> yeah. and, and and that's hard. You know, we yeah. unfortunately there have been a few instances in the last sort of year where we've been working with some clients that have come under difficult circumstances, mm. some through their own ma own manufacturer, to be honest, yeah. um, and they are now in a worse situation than when they started. Yeah, and so you, you've got to be wary of that. And putting your own cash into deals is a really good way of actually mitigating your risk. Yeah, because you're you you are reducing the amount of money that you you have to mm. pay back to people therefore yeah, if something true. does go wrong you've got that buffer yeah. you? and you're losing your own money rather than somebody else's and I think yeah. that's important and I think putting your own money in as well creates a bit more um, what's the word I'm looking for it, it puts more onus on you as the investor yeah. to actually do your due diligence properly um, like you said you've got skin in the game you don't want this to go wrong because it's your money you're losing mm. so that's going to make you do that extra bit of research that maybe you wouldn't have done if you were just borrowing someone else's money this is this is like a just a, a, I think a business rule in general if you mm. are flush with cash mm. you think less about spending it yeah so you know the, the the you might use the example of somebody that's putting loads of money into a marketing budget that marketing team is not necessarily going to be they're just going to be chucking money at everything yeah rather than being really kind of squeaky on right what's going to give us the greatest returns yeah you might have like a, a, a a company like a venture capitalist company that buys other companies if you've got loads of money you can buy everything yeah rather than if you haven't got a lot you go right i need i've got 10 opportunities here i need to pick the one make it work you know yeah. and you, that's what you do you're absolutely right yeah absolutely right so basically <laughs> we went we went we went yeah, we big old big old margin there <laughs> do i need a deposit for a bridge yes and no i yeah. guess you you need it might not be it might not be money, mm. but you definitely need equity at the very least as a deposit. Yeah, I mean, it covers everything that we've probably spoken about for the past five minutes, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, you, you can, that's the thing, you can do it with little money, but you go a lot further when you have got it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Right, question number three, um, and again, these why these questions are great, because these mm. we do, I do actually get these a lot, I'm sure you do too. Um, do you pay monthly on a bridging loan? So, there you do go. you pay? Do you pay monthly on a bridging loan? You can. You can. You can. Um, I think what a lot of people think with the bridging loan is um, that it's easy to pay monthly. Mm. So very very quickly, there's essentially three ways of paying interest on a bridging loan. So yeah. we've got um, retained, which is most lenders' preference. So obviously that will be taking the gross loan, which might be seventy five percent and then it might be a 12 month term, and then they retain or deduct the yeah. interest. Or the opposite side of that is we do roll interest, which is actually essentially the other way around, where we start with a lower loan amount, and then we add on the interest yeah. to the loan each month until we reach a, a ceiling. Yeah. Um, and then of course the last one is what we call serviced interest, which is when you pay it monthly. Yeah. Now, lots of people, if you do the serviced interest, then the net loan that you're getting will be higher, because obviously yes. you're not having to pay the interest is part of upfront and as part of the loan. Yeah. Um, but of course, we know that there's issues with that. Now, when we've got a buy to let mortgage, servicing the debt, i.e., paying the interest only payments per month, mm. lenders can look at that and go, well, we've got a 
mental stress test that says that you're going to get enough money in each month to cover your payments by through the rent. Through the rent. Yeah. With bridging, a lot of the time these are refurbishment projects, stuff like that. We're not getting rent. We're not getting rent. So I find, um, and I don't know if you know any deviations to this, but rule of thumb for me is if the lender, if you can highlight to the lender that over the last three months you've got a rolling surplus equal to or more than what the monthly payment would be yeah. to pay the interest payment, lenders are generally okay with it. Yeah. I don't know if you see any, any kind of variations of that. Yeah, that's it. It's all about your um, what you've got left over every month once you've been paid. And it's back to that cash flow situation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Making sure that, like you said, the three pillars, if you've got cash flow, then that will allow you to take a bridging loan and service the, the debt mm-hmm. rather than having it retained. Because um, although the lenders prefer to retain the interest because they've get, they got their money straight away, they've, they've taken their interest straight away. But for you as the investor, that may mean that you've added an extra three to six months onto your bridge just as a safety net in case anything went wrong. But you're paying that interest for six to well six months potentially that you don't need to yeah albeit you'll get it back at the end if you do repay that bridge early but by servicing it you're, you're paying it every month and once you're finished with the bridge that's that's the end and yeah if you've got cash flow then i mean it's it's the easy way to go isn't it it's exactly i mean but then i guess the flip side of that is if you have got cash flow then potentially you've got a you've got some cash that you can put down a higher deposit yeah um, so you can do the retained interest, which means then that you don't have the concern of having the monthly payments to be made. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you, you're you're kind of not having to, to worry about that if you you've got extra money stashed away. Yeah. So if you do need to use that cash for you know for yeah. increasing cost of build building materials or something like that, yeah. Then it can be used. I think it comes back to what we were saying previously that generally, if you can put more cash into a deal is better always you pay less interest i mean yeah. you're less leveraged you're not stressed mm-hmm. thinking am i going to be able to pay this back yeah, yeah. it just yeah if you want to do things and be able to sleep <laughs> sleep easy knowing that you know you've got that safety net then yeah, yeah. another thing that a lot of uh, bridging lenders now do is um they can do like a split interest yeah. so we could do six months at ret- or retained so we yeah. retain six months with the agreement that we will start paying mm. the interest per month after six months. Now, what a lot of lenders do with that is that they will take into account the fact that you might be getting rental income by that point. By that point, So yeah. a lot of the time, and this again comes back to, and it, and it always sounds like I'm trying to like big up or always use a broker, always use a broker. I mean, of course, always use a broker if you can. Um, but a lot of lenders actually will, will make an assumption on that and won't necessarily, because it's after six months, they might not do the level of due diligence mm. that is probably necessary to ensure that it is feasible for you to do that. Yeah. I've certainly seen that on a few deals recently. So mm. having that broker there to give the client the reassurance that they don't even know that they probably need, yeah. that actually it will be feasible to do that at some point. Right? This is what you will start paying. You're going to be paying £1,500 yeah. a month in interest as of month six mm. slash seven. Yeah. Well, okay, where's that coming from? Well, your rent's going to be £1,600. You've got, I mean, you haven't got a lot to, to manoeuvre there, but it's only short term, um, yeah. and you will have that money there, and you will get it rented out by that point. Okay, yeah. happy days. Well, that's it. I've, st- yeah. I've started using that technique with um, clients that I can see there's there's plenty of um, surplus, you know, monthly funds that they've got every month, and I say, well, we could retain it for the full term, but it may save you a little bit. You can you put less down at the start if if needs be by obviously adding the serviced element of the loan. 
um, because by then you will have got the tenants in there. So it's and it's also I think it, it's um, it gives the the comfort as well. So if we do say we do a split six and six months, we'll say well I mean for me on average my clients I probably would say get out between month five and eight. Yeah. Um, so if we are aiming to get it done by month six, for example, mm. as you, you mentioned in a couple of examples previously, well, we're never gonna get to that point where we need to service it there anyway, but by having that term continue on till month 12, yeah. it's gonna cost us less to start having to pay a couple of months worth of interest than exactly. it is to fall into default interest and pay extra fees and all that sort of stuff. So 100%. I think it's, it's a way of you know being a bit creative. And this is why, yeah. this is why I talk about bridging finance all the time. I truly believe that as a, property investor, if you understand not only how bridging finance works, mm. but how you can use it and all the different ways in which you can use it, yeah. it makes you an infinitely better property investor. Yeah, it's, it's utilising it as a tool and mm. not just seeing it as an expensive shovel to dig gold with. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, I've, I've started noticing it because clients, they want, they want six months bridge when they've got a four month refurb and I'm like I don't feel comfortable putting you on a six month bridge when you've got a four month refurb because I want to allow at least three months to refinance and then you want a safety net of in case your refurb runs over so like every time I've put a client on a six month bridge they've run over and that's and it was only meant to be an eight week refurb so it's like okay I've start I've learned quite quickly that a nine month bridge with three months serviced interest works out a lot better for the client because then they they are still only paying six months retained interest, mm -hmm. and if you go over, then it's down to you to start paying it monthly. Yeah. Obviously, we check that they can afford that, but mm -hmm. yeah, then the client gets what they want, and I get what I want because then it's yeah. their safety net because we're here to advise them and, and look after them, you know. So absolutely, no, yeah. very good advice. Um, yeah, I think we covered that off. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Question number four. How long does it take to arrange a bridging loan? Now, I mean, this, if, this is literally the, the, the differentiator between the shortest way and the longest way. Yeah. There, there's there's a big difference. And it depends yeah. on, I think it depends on a lot of factors. Yeah. What's the quickest bridge you've done recently? Oh God. Bearing in mind the market's pretty rubbish at the moment. Yeah, and it, it again, it depends on the lender as well. Mm. I, and, well, I say it depends on the lender. It depends on the client solicitor as well. It's 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 very many many very many variables. Sorry, should I say? I think it's, um, it's down to risk a lot of the time. Yeah. So if you've got, um, I've got a client at the moment where we have got a really tight deadline. Now, yeah. when you have got a tight deadline, you've got a way up. Is it is is it worth the risk of paying out some fees for something that might not actually end up going ahead? I think yeah. that's what it's all about because. With a with a with a um, a bridging application, the way I kind of describe it to my clients is: if you do the mortgage application, it's linear. Mm. We do our decision principle, we do our full mortgage application, we do our underwriting, yeah. we do our uh, valuation, we get our offer, and then we do our legals. Yeah. With a bridge, you can overlap that to the point where you can do all of that at the same time. Of yeah. course, we do have the initial bit at the beginning where we're just getting the terms together, mm. but usually the application process is quite straightforward. Yeah. So we can do the application process get quotes for valuation and legals, pay said quotes for valuation and legals, mm. get the underwriting started, get the valuations booked in, and then instruct legals as well. So we're doing mm. all three of those things running side by side. Now, yeah. of course, if something comes up in, in the valuation, or something comes up in legals, something comes up in underwriting, that causes the entire thing to fall, fall apart, you ain't gonna be getting those fees back. Yeah. So that's where the risk is. But if you do do that, then, and you wanna take that risk, mm. then actually, you think of how long each of those things take. So underwriting generally a couple of days. Yeah. So that'll be out of the way nice and quickly. Yeah. Um, legals, 
worst case scenario, we're probably talking four weeks because that's how long the, the longest search will take. That's the local authority search takes 30 days generally, yeah. but we can take out an indemnity insurance policy against that. So that might cost you two or 300 quid, which means that we don't need that completed before completion or before drawdown of the funds. Mm. We can get that to the lender afterwards. Yeah. So that means you don't need to do that. So legals could, the quickest I've seen legals take is a week. Yeah. And then valuation, say we instructed day one, gets booked in on day three, and report is back on day six, mm. then we start moving the money around. So if we're doing that, we're talking about a week and a half. Yeah. It, it, like these, all these like people saying, oh, I've done these two day, three day, four day bridges. Yeah. Generally speaking, that's only when something's gone wrong before With and a bridging lender. lenders have to step in. We yeah. don't need a valuation or there's a, we can do it an online valuation or mm. half the legals has been done. Yeah. If we are talking about starting from scratch, I think a week and a half, two weeks is pretty much the quickest you're going to turn it around. Yeah, I agree. I've To be honest, I've not been in a position where I've needed to do that for a client. I've not been that. I think the, the quickest I've needed to arrange a bridge for a client is, is the auction. So mm. 28 days, 30 days. And the days, thing is, so. if you do everything that we just said, mm. I tend to, to do, I think you probably do the same, is we've usually got 20 working days with an auction. Yeah. So I tend to work on the let's all work to 15 working days. So yeah. three weeks. Um, because then it gives us a five-day buffer if something goes wrong and a five-day mm. buffer to move the money around. Because the amazing thing with bridging yeah. is we can do all this other all this stuff. And then it's, and then this is this is one of the things that drives me nuts, is it can take five days to move the money around. And I'm like, hang on a second, these bridging lenders, they, they, they put yeah. all this time and effort into making sure their underwriting is quick and their legals are quick and they've got all these things and processes in place to, to speed up everything. Yeah. But then they haven't put the time and effort in just putting the, the normal functionality in to be able to move money quickly. Yeah. It takes five days. I had a situation recently where it took six days wow. to move the money. Mm. It was stuck with the, the, the um, lender's solicitor for like a day. I'm like, why? Yeah. Why? And it's literally because, oh yeah, we were busy, we didn't see that it was in. Uh, <sighs> it's just human error. Manual, yeah. The manual processes. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, where, not wanting to deviate too much, but you think about things like blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies yeah. and all that kind of stuff where you can, Money can literally be one in one place one second and another mm. place another second. Yeah. Um, having the capabilities of doing that, okay, it might mean that you transfer pounds into a cryptocurrency, it gets transferred and then it gets um, you know, to transferred again into mm. um, into pounds again. But that'd still be a quicker process. So, yeah. you know, that's another technology that hopefully, you know, lenders might be able to implement at some point. Mm. And by doing that as well and, and doing things like smart contracts and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, we're going off on a bit of a tangent there, but those things in place mean that actually the the legals becomes quicker in terms of the moving the money through the through the legal advisors. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need, and, and and you know I've just gone through that process. Are so you you know you convert pounds to crypto, crypto gets moved, crypto gets back into pounds, and then you have to repeat that process. Mm. It takes less time to actually do that than it takes me to describe what it is. <laughs> So, or how it's done. So actually that's instantaneous. Mm. So then it's, it's there. And because blockchain is so safe, less checks will be needed from the, each legal advisor. So it could probably be moved from lender to vendor. Lender to vendor. In seconds. Yeah. But it's, it's about um, moving all of that technology forward, isn't it? And, and having everything to support that mm. um, because I saw a, a property investor was posting that they were in some in their solicitor's office, and it's like surely there's a quicker way. There's something that can be done about the legal process. I was 
speaking to, and this is all that does come part of the, 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 this question, which is how long does it take to, you mm. know, to actually apply for a bridging loan? But I, um, oh, where was, what was I talking to recently? A lender still wanted originals of a, of a signed document. Yeah. Right. Why? Mm. Like we get our clients to sign our terms of business digitally. Yeah. So many things are done digitally and, and actually in certain instances there is evidence to suggest that digital signatures are actually more yeah. safe yeah. than a wet signature because anyone, anyone can could do have done a wet it. signature, yeah, but you, know? you can and follow IP addresses and things like that. Exactly, when you so get it's an actually entry. safer to do yeah. a digital signature. Um, and lenders, yeah, I find that, yeah, bridging lenders, some of them are amazing and some of them are, are so behind on the technology. Yeah. Um, and it's just about educating yeah. these lenders. I mean, it, it will come into place at, at some point in the future, but mm. this is, I guess this all comes back to not only just this question, but when we speak to our clients a lot of the time, yeah. we're saying to them, but like I use the terminology, what's the drop dead date? Yeah. What's the date that if we do not hit that, it's done? Yeah. And then we have to use our knowledge of doing regular bridging lenders, uh, bridging loans, um, and knowing which lenders are doing what, yeah. and what their process is. And it's not just how quickly they're doing their underwriting, it's, what access do they have to surveyors that can do it quickly? Yeah. Who Who's doing their legals? Are they yeah. able to do joint representation? How quickly can they move the money? Yeah. Do they need wet signatures on this, 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 and this? Yeah. We have to know all that stuff, and that, will come, and that all fits into how quickly the overall transaction can, can yeah. take place. And I think we're very lucky because I think we're quite well regarded by bridging lenders. Mm. Um, we do kind of have our pick of who we use, and we will tend to favour those that have this technology in place because it's not just about the cost. You know, we spoke earlier about cost, but yeah. it's not just about the cost. The I, I talk it I, I talk about the bridging triangle, you know, speed, cost, flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I always say if speed and flexibility are not your priority, that only then do we go on the cheapest option. Exactly. But most people need the flexibility of a high loan to value mm -hmm. or the ability to work at speed if you're at auction, yeah. in which case that is your priority. And generally speaking, I find that nine times out of 10, cost is the least priority. Yeah. Speed and flexibility in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. We talk about open market value bridging. Not all lenders do open market value bridging. No. You know, We talk about refurbishment bridges. Not all uh, yeah. lenders will do refurbishment bridges. So yeah. if that's the case, then you need a, a flexible lender. And if you need yeah. them to then also work at speed, cost is, mm. You know, tertiary exactly. to those yeah, two. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so yeah, and yeah, it's, that's it. And when you go into these niche lenders and you're, you've got niche requirements, sometimes you have got to take the hit on the on the fees or take a hit on how how quick it's going to take. So mm -hmm. yeah, sometimes there is a little bit of compromise, but we we try our best to to fit all three and and make our clients happy. But yeah, sometimes there has got to be a bit of compromise. Indeed, indeed. Cool. So, how long does it take to arrange a bridging loan? Well, your guess is as good as ours, but <laughs> generally, short short term. Um, if, if we're starting from scratch, nothing um, nothing been done already. One and a half to two weeks. But you know, if if, if it goes wrong and we've got bad solicitors, you know, it goes, it goes into the months sometimes. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Right. Last fifth and final question. Uh, what are the alternatives to bridging finance? And I think mm. I would put this into two categories. Yeah. What I think we're talking about here is a standard bridging loan. What's the alternative to a standard bridging loan? Mm. A seventy-five percent. Well, actually, standard is probably a seventy percent bridge. Yeah. So, I'll, so we're looking at 
different products in terms of non-bridging loans, and then we're also looking at variations on bridging, yeah. I think. So going through the, uh, the non-bridging ones, I would say we've got using cash, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I speak to my clients quite a lot about cash, and I say, because I've got loads of clients that buy with cash, mm. and it's because borrowing money on BRR, conversions, you know, whatever it might be, they're just a facilitator to allow you to do to build your portfolio or do what you want to do quicker. Yeah. So borrowing money just means that you can get make your money go further. That's you don't it. need to save as much yeah. to get the deal done, um, or you could end up doing multiple deals at the same time because you've got enough cash to buy this project. Yeah. But if you if you borrow half the money, you can put the other half into another project and mm. you can run them side by side and do more. That's it. Um, I always say this to my yeah. clients. So, you can choose simple figures, but say you've got 100% of the money to buy a house cash. Well, if you used bridging finance and it's a 25% deposit, obviously you've got fees and things like that, but you could buy four of those projects with the same money. And that, and then that four properties will add to your portfolio and in a year's time, with the capital appreciation on those four properties, it just... And the just, cash flow they're gonna generate yeah, as well. Well, yeah, it just snowballs then from there. So you've, got, you've gone from one to four in exactly the same time that you could have taken to do one deal. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's really good, I, I always say, if you wanna buy your first deal cash, dip your toe in and get a feel of, cause you may not even enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. You may not like property investing. And so if you wanna do it and put all of your money into it, know that it's safe, well, safe, but you know, know that you're not over leveraging and risking, then um, yeah, do do cash. But yeah, like you said, if you're, if you're trying to grow aggressively, then split that money into multiple projects. Yeah, for sure. I, I I totally agree, and I think that I mean that this also just not to, not going too far down this rabbit hole because it sort of deviates away from this question, but mm. it's it's not over leveraging as well. So I think using cash and using it well, just you know you don't have to always leverage the highest amount. Yeah. You don't have to go to 75 percent. You could do a fifty percent bridge. Yeah. Put fifty percent of the money in yourself. Yeah. That's and that and that you're still. You, it's a nice halfway house then. You, yeah. You're de-risking it. You're reducing the cost of your funds massively, um, but you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. Mm. And I think that's a that's always a good, yeah. good sort of, um, yeah, like a another halfway way of, in uh, between. Yeah. yeah, you can either go full hog and get the four properties, or you can maybe even do two yeah. at a time, or you could do one. It's, exactly. It's, it's, it all depends on like a back to what your end goal is, where you want to be in a couple of years' time, and totally. work back from there. Obviously, we've also got. The other alternative, which is using an investor. Yeah. We've both got clients who use investors all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll use a combination of that and bridging. Sometimes we'll use just an investor. Yeah. Um, I think the key with investors is, um, it's. I think it's trendy, it's cool to use an investor, isn't it? Yeah. You see it on Instagram, you know, oh, how, how, how to use investors, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Great, happy days, great. But everyone just assumes it's more, it's, it's better to use an investor than a bridging lender. Yeah. I think there's two reasons why sometimes it's better to use a bridge. The first is that genuinely sometimes it's cheaper. Yeah. So exactly what we were talking about before, a lot of investors will look at fixed returns. Mm. So they will look at, right, you're paying me 10% regardless. Yeah. Now you might pay me 1% on a bridge, but then, and you're 2% fee, 14% free per year. So then you're looking, well, actually that's the same. Well, if you pay it off in six months, yeah. then actually you're only paying, um, Eight percent mm. versus ten percent. You're saving two percent. Yeah. Because you're paying that investor back ten percent regardless. Yeah. So it's always important to look at that. But also, um, in fact, there's three ways. There's there's the, adding a sec a, another one into there, 
which I'll, I'll chuck it into the middle, which is you've got to do the due diligence on the origin of the funds. Yes. Sometimes that's going to be quite difficult. You've got to take a lot of responsibility for where that money has come from because yeah. if that money is found mm-hmm. to have been from an illegal source, that transaction has gone through, you're complicit. The lender's also complicit if they haven't done enough due diligence. But yeah. you're, well, especially if you're buying if you're buying cash yeah. with cash with the with the investors' money and you're not using a bridging lender because obviously yeah. they, they would ask to check it. But if you're doing the cash and then that money is found to have come from a legal source, you're complicit in that illegal activity. Yeah. And naivety is not is not going to stand up <laughs> in court. Not, yeah. You are charged with doing that due diligence. So mm. that is extra work that you need to do. Yeah. Um, and the last one is actually professional relationship. Mm. A bridging lender is just an organisation. They're providing a product, a service. Yeah. When you get an investor involved, especially as a family member, a friend, you know, potential business partner, all this kind mm. of stuff. It's, it's all it's human beings, and yeah. that can sometimes make the t- it make it more difficult as well. Yeah, I agree. There's emotion attached. Mm. I love the fact that when you use a bridging lender, it's an extra pair of eyes. Mm. It's, they do bridging like they see property deals every single day. Mm. So if they're looking at your deal and thinking, oh, it's tight, maybe we might de-risk and, and give you you know seventy percent of the value rather than seventy five. It's, it's, it's a good indication of yeah. how good your deal is. Totally. Um, and I always say this to clients: it's like if this lender likes your deal, it's a good deal. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a, a, a another pair of eyes. It, exactly. And, like. and why wouldn't you want that? You know, yeah. particularly. So okay, so that's kind of like your your non bridging alternatives. Now. I mean, to be honest, there's probably an infinite uses for, for bridging in terms of alternatives to the standard, but um, we've already spoken about a couple, but I suppose we can reel, reel a few off. We've got open market money bridging. Yes. We've got refurbishment bridges. Yes. We've got development finance. Um, Anything else you can think of? I mean, you could do an exchange delayed completion, mm-hmm. um, which potentially, well, essentially is open market, open market value, value, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's so many different products you like, can use. Like stretch, stretch bridging, where we go to 80% raise of value. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But yeah, there's loads. There's loads of different ways. So I suppose as an alternative to the standard, where we might be looking at 70, 75% mm. of the purchase price. So that's like this standard bridge. That's where you're going to go to like the precises of this world. Yeah, you know, the vanillas. Your real vanilla lenders, they're going to offer great rates, but Jesus Christ, they're going to make you work for it. Um, <laughs> So then you've got, like I said, the alternatives. You've got your open market value bridge. We've already sort of touched upon that when you're looking at basing the loan on the open market value, not yeah. the purchase price. The purchase price is lower. So mm-hmm. that gives you a higher loan to purchase price, which is really useful. Yeah. Refurbishment bridges, taking it to 85% loan to value. That extra yeah. 10% on the standard is meant to be a contribution towards the works. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, uh, delayed completions, where we can look at open market value bridging at completion rather than at point of yeah. purchase or the point of application or the point of valuation which is really useful mm-hmm. um revolving credit line revolving credit line yeah that's another really, really I love good them one. Yeah. so if you've got an unencumbered property or an un- unencumbered portfolio you can leverage that and they can basically give you a pot of funds it's like someone said it's like a credit card or an overdraft it's basically the money is there for you to use and then once you've done your deal um maybe buying an auction doing a little flip then once you refinance that out, you pay your, your pot of money back to the lender and you can just tap, tap in and keep going. Um, and a lender gave me uh, an example of a, a client who did this back in 2008 and they just mopped up at all the auctions using an existing portfolio that they had to leverage to go and buy 
properties that were being repossessed, cheap things, anything, and they were just cleaning Because they can literally, with yeah. that, you could literally complete it in a matter of days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The funds are there to you for you to draw down, yeah, within a day or two. Um, I've just done one for a client now. Yeah, it, and, and these are to be, like, differentiated from the old traditional credit lines back in the day. Mm. That, um, you know, you'd go into your bank, this is like pre-credit crunch, go into your bank and you're a developer and they'd give you you know, a half a million pound credit line that you can dip in and out of. Now, what they would have to do is they would still, because they're going to be secured against the property that you're buying, they still might want to do a valuation, you still want to know about the property you're buying, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. If you're doing this revolving credit line that we're talking about, it's a new product where it's secured against exist an existing portfolio, existing stuff, yeah. therefore, what it actually means is that you don't need to do all that due diligence on a new project because it doesn't matter because it's secured against it's a different one. property. Yeah. So that's, just that's that what makes it so, such a great, great product. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think if you're using that type of product, um, I think you need a real, uh, you need your blinkers on and you need to be in what, and focused yeah. and zoned in on how you're going to grow quickly um, to make use of that. Yeah. I think one of the best uses for a revolving credit line is property trading, yeah. um, where um, you might see, so I've got a client where what they will do is um, they will spot properties that are maybe in the wrong auction. Mm. So it might be a commercial property in a predominantly residential auction or vice yeah. versa. Um, they will go in, they've got the credit to be able to go bang. They might even go pre-auction, mm. like I'll buy that. It's, it's guy price is 100 grand, right? I'll give you 80 grand now for it. Happy days, great. And then what they do is they just go and put it in the right auction and they'll sell it for 150 yeah and then they pay back the money and then they've got that and, and that's and that's like a, a within a month type transaction mm. um and and that if you can get that right i mean it takes an incredible amount of due diligence knowledge understanding of the market experience yeah. having the good people around you but that is a really good example yeah. of how you could use a revolving credit line to you know, make money quickly in property just yeah. trade up properties yeah that's it out. you've got your source in and uh, how you get into property with no money, rent to rent, sourcing and things like that. But yeah, using, leveraging existing uh, properties as a, like you said, trading. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's good. It's a good one. It's a good one. Cool. Well, look, that is the five top bridging finance questions that are being asked on Google right now. Um, if you do want to get in touch with either myself or Chanel, there'll be links to either get in touch with us directly or book a time in our diary to have a consultation in the show notes slash description. Um, but all we've really left to say is thanks for watching and Thank you. see you later. See ya. That's the sink. That's How was that? Let's fucking hope that works. I don't know how long that was. I didn't look. But we've been down here probably about half an hour, 40 minutes. Yeah. Cool. Right, let's just, I'm going to turn it off. It's really making me just, oh, please. Let there be a card in here. Yes, there is. <laughs> right. Goodbye. Right, so I just need to find out then. I mean, to, what I'll probably do is leave it until tomorrow mm. and then I'll speak to Shake and. Get on. So what I'm actually thinking, as, as we were doing that, what mm. I was thinking is I'll probably use the audio for a podcast episode anyway. Um, but what we could maybe do is um, split them up and 
each question, I'll do, I'll put one big video out on YouTube probably, but we could mm. probably split, split them up and... Oh. Yep, that's it. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of the episode, guys. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of the other Game of Loans podcast episodes, please, I would ask you a massive favour to leave a five-star review. It massively helps me grow the podcast and reach more people that will hopefully enjoy the episodes as much as you have. Thank you so much in advance for this, and I'll hopefully see you on the next episode.